VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Ultimately, this isn't about the environment. This isn't about saving the planet. This is about sustaining our own species. And I think that that has shifted how we think about climate technology and its applications in financial services, in insurance, in how we get around, you know, all of these kind of fundamental areas of our life. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, back for another episode. And it's a very good one, guys. Really. On the program, we have Emily Kirsch. She is the founder of a company called Powerhouse, right here in my town of Oakland, California. And Powerhouse is fascinating because it's actually... It's a climate tech company, but it's actually kind of two climate tech companies. One uh, is kind of a corporate connector, if you will, which they help big energy companies and corporates find the startups in the climate tech world that they should be partnering with, investing with, maybe buying. And then the other is Powerhouse Ventures, which this month, March 2022, announced a new $70 million fund, which is going to use to invest in startups in a very important niche which is the software layer that we're all going to need to run this new kind of decarbonizing or decarbonized world we're very slowly entering Chino's is full of electric cars and variable renewables and all the rest and just kind of it's going to require a lot of rethinking of how things work how to optimize networks of hard assets everything So software is going to play a very big role, and so Powerhouse Ventures is going to be focusing on that. And Emily herself just has a great story to tell, not least going back to her roots as the daughter of hippie parents. Then she went into community organizing and activism early in her career to what she's doing now. And also, not to be diminished, she's doing it as a woman in obviously a very dude-heavy world. So she's just super impressive. She has great insights into this whole green transition, how it's happening, whether it's happening fast enough, and kind of where the action is and where kind of powerhouse sits in all of that. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, I give you Emily Kirsch of Powerhouse. Enjoy. Thank you, Emily, very much for for taking the time. Of course. So can you explain, because you're doing something that's really interesting and you've been at this longer than most. (laughs) So what is Powerhouse? 
how did you start this? Why did you start this? And then we can kind of move forward to kind of the news of the day. But can we just start about, you know, how and why you started Powerhouse? So Powerhouse is a company. It's an innovation firm that I started in 2013. And we work with globally leading corporations. So think energy companies, utilities, tech companies, and we help them find startups that they may want to partner with or invest in or acquire. So all of these corporates have either made these ambitious climate commitments like Google, which is a client. More and more of them every day. Yeah, yeah. Something like 80% of global GDP is now covered by a net zero commitment, which is wild. Is that real? Really? <laughs> well, so that is real. Implementation <laughs> is the question. And that's right, right, right. and that's exactly why Powerhouse exists. So as these companies are making these climate commitments and as oil and gas companies and utilities are having to completely reimagine their business and their business model, we work with them to connect them to innovators and entrepreneurs who they know they need to either meet their ambitious climate goals and or to to rebuild their business from the ground up. And so we make those connections. And the goal is that those introductions to startups and founders result in customer agreements and investments or even acquisitions. So that's Powerhouse the company. And we've built this database of thousands of climate tech startups. It's kind of like Crunchbase or PitchBook for climate tech startups. Um, and that's the foundation of the consulting work that we do with globally leading corporations. So think, you know, our, our clients are Google, utilities like Enel, Asian conglomerates like Marabeni Power, right. DNV, et cetera, et cetera. So that's Powerhouse. And then a couple of years into running Powerhouse, we realized we had built this database of, of thousands of climate tech startups. We had more accurate and holistic information than pretty much anyone else. And we looked around and said, how can there not be a seed stage software-focused climate tech venture fund? At the time, yeah. it didn't exist. And I think we're still one of, if not the only, with that explicit focus. And the thesis there was that the energy and mobility sectors represent the technology and infrastructure backbone of a carbon-free economy. In the U.S., two-thirds of our emissions come from energy and mobility. And the cost of hardware has declined you know, in the case yeah. of solar, 85%, case of wind, almost 50% over the past decade. And so our thesis was hardware is no longer the limiting factor in decarbonization at scale. And so right. we embarked with this conviction that following this revolution in hardware and proven technology, how do we get that proven tech to scale globally as quickly as possible? You do that with software and financial technology. And so that was the, the premise of our thesis. And so that was what you launched that first fund in 2015? Uh, 2018. 2018. How big was that fund? <laughs> that was a pilot fund. And it was, we set out to just raise 5 million and we ended up raising seven. So the average check into startups out of that first fund was just 150K. And we really did treat it as a pilot. We were all first time fund managers and we knew there'd be a lot to learn and we wanted to learn it, you know, with a small fund. But in part, what we learned is we can find and get into some of the companies that are now market leaders who we backed just, you know, a couple years ago. And so right. fund two, as you know, is 10x the size of fund one. So 70 million. Um, and we're going to be able to write much bigger checks. But the thesis is the same seed stage, software focused technology across finance and deployment, asset management and optimization, and market access and participation to drive the adoption of proven tech globally as quickly as possible. Right. So, the, And that's that's the kind of the news, so to speak, is that you've raised this new fund. What is the final number? Final number is 70, 70 million. 70 million. So 
before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of that, if we can go back to 2013, what was happening in 2013? Like, what were you doing before you created this company? And what led you to do it? Because at that time, I can't remember where in the cycle it was. Oh, it was the worst. It was, <laughs> it was yeah, like right. Because the there was the, point. <laughs> yeah, there was that kind of first wave of green investment. Everybody's excited about it. And then mm -hmm. it all goes, as the Brits say, it all goes pear-shaped. <laughs> all of these all these investments go down to zero. There's bankruptcies. It doesn't work. Everybody's like, oh, you know, screw this. We're not going to invest in this. This, you know, it's not ready. So you, of course thought this is a perfect time. <laughs> Just like Buffett, you know, <laughs> exactly. not to compare myself to Buffett, but um, <laughs> so leading up to 2013, I had worked with somebody who has since developed a national presence as a commentator on CNN named Van Jones. He had yes. started an organization focused on originally criminal justice reform and then environmental justice. And he helped pioneer this concept of green jobs early on. And so I worked with him on workforce development training, then on local climate policy, then on state ballot initiative work. And he was friends with Prince, like the music icon. I love and this. Prince, yes. <laughs> Prince did all of this <laughs> secret philanthropic work all over the country, which he right. was already, you know, a god to many of us. But yes. but on top of that, he's doing all this secret philanthropic work. And he wanted to do something related to green jobs in Oakland, in part because of his relationship with Van. Because Van is from Oakland, correct? Uh, he's not from here, but he had been based here for, you know, I don't know, 15 years or so. Right. And the organization you were helping with, did he have, was it a nonprofit? Was it a business? Exactly. Yep. Right. Yep. It was a nonprofit called the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. And so at the time, a, a mutual friend of Van and I was starting a company called Mosaic. And I worked with Mosaic on their pilot in Oakland, and they were helping finance solar on nonprofits and community-based organizations. Uh, and what, what only came to light after Prince's passing away was that that pilot was funded in part by Prince. And so to this right. day, if you drive around Oakland and you see solar on churches or community-based organizations, good chance that it was funded in, in part by Prince. Prince and he was what so I know. And he was so <laughs> humble. Yeah. So humble about his work that not only would he not talk about it, if you worked with him on it, you couldn't talk about it. Um, which I think says a lot about who he is. So so that gave me the idea that, you know, supporting this this startup and their pilot at the time, I thought you know, this is the San Francisco Bay Area, global home of venture capital, global home of climate technology innovation. There must be an entity that's supporting yeah. startups like Mosaic, you know, getting them connected to customers and investors. And I looked around for months and couldn't find it because it didn't exist. And I very naively thought, all right, well, I should try this and it's probably going to fail because <laughs> most startups do, but yep. I'll be happy I tried. Right. And how old were you at the time? Oh, gosh, uh, this was I was in my late 20s. Right. And do you come from entrepreneurial background? Like, because that's a, it's a big mouthful to take on, you know, just like, oh yeah, I'm just going to kind of create this again in the midst of like this historic bust in the sectors that you're trying to kind of launch into. Yeah. So I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay area, born in San Francisco, raised in Marin. So, so in some ways I feel like it's just in the air. There's yeah. this, yeah. there's not a lot of reverence for hierarchy here in a way that I love, you yeah. know, it's, you build what you can and certainly taking privilege into account here. Um, but I love, I love that about the Bay area compared to other parts of the country and certainly other parts of the world. And then on top of that, my parents did start a nonprofit the year that I was born and they ran that together for, for decades. And so oh, wow. I think I, I always had this sense of, you know, you can start something from nothing and you can create impact that, that didn't previously exist just by your own, you know, 
work and teamwork and right. Um, so so yeah, I think that was part of my foundation. What was that nonprofit? Um, focused on sports, integrating principles of sports into education. So for students who were thriving in their athletics, but maybe failing academically, the idea is take the same principles of sports like teamwork and dedication and hard work and apply that to academics. And so it was a way to help help students succeed um, in their academics as they were succeeding in athletics. Wow. Cool. Is that still yeah. going? It is still going. Yeah, it is. Wow. And um, I must admit, I listened to one of your in-house podcasts. And the thing that stuck with me was your family had a saying every time before you left the house. Oh, every day. What yeah. Was it? yeah. Good research. I'm impressed. <laughs> you, you dug deep for that. That is, that is really impressive. You know, they, they were ex-hippies. They taught my brother and I to meditate in elementary school. And, and instead of any kind of religious practice, they both yeah. came from religious families, but neither of them were religious as adults, but they wanted to instill some sense of that kind of, that kind of ritual and practice. And so pretty much every day from as early as I can remember until I rebelled as a teenager and stopped doing it. But yeah. we would we would say as a family, a couple what I would call affirmations. So we would say, let's be bold, let's be kind, let's learn something new, let's be grateful and let's be forgiving. And on days that I do meditate, that is part of my practice. And I, right. I'm really grateful for them for instilling those affirmations early on as something for me to hold on to as I you know, went through my education and then, and then on to building powerhouse. Well, I imagine that those affirmations came in handy when you were trying to do a startup. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> and so absolutely. how do you start? I mean, what, so what were those early years like? Because again, you're kind of starting with the wind in your face, so to speak. <laughs> and how do you start to kind of convince, you know, big corporates and people like, you know, this is, there's a there there that can be really useful um, because, you know, in 2022, as you say, mm -hmm. 80% of GDP now has some tie to a net zero commitment, mm -hmm. which is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Now you can talk about the delivery of that, but just even that shift in mindset and agreement that this is a big problem that is urgent we need to fix feels like that must have been a world apart from when you started. Completely. And and when we started Powerhouse, it was actually pretty different than what we are today. So as I mentioned today, innovation firm doing consulting with large corporates. But when we started, we were an incubator and an accelerator. So incubator meaning physical space for yeah. climate tech entrepreneurs, accelerator meaning, you know, cohorts of, of startups that would go through a six month program. Um, and that was kind of the model at the time or the only one that, that I was familiar with and, and emulated. And so at one point we had 50,000 square feet in downtown Oakland. It was the top three floors of this beautiful hundred year old wow. brick building with a roof deck and we would do happy hours and parties and hackathons. Um, we had dozens of companies in the space, over a hundred entrepreneurs, and it really created this sense of community that I'm proud of. And I think served an important purpose at the time, as you said, it was a tough time in the industry. And so yeah. giving entrepreneurs a chance to just sit side by side with one another and learn from each other, it was great. It was great. It was fun. But what I realized after a few years of doing that, one, I realized I didn't want to be a landlord because <laughs> it's risky. <laughs> um, you know, it worked yep. out, um, but but it is risky. And then two is it doesn't scale. You know, with a with an incubator, you're limited by your physical space and how many, you know, just bodies you can fit in a building. And then with an accelerator, you're limited by the number of companies in a cohort and how frequently you run those cohorts. Oftentimes they're just once or twice a year. 
and it's good work and it's important work. And I have a lot of colleagues who lead incredible organizations that are doing exactly this. But the question I start asking myself is, okay, if we're going to address the climate crisis in the time that we have, how does this work get to scale globally as quickly as possible? And there's two sides of that equation. One is is corporations and corporations who were were over the past few years, starting to make these climate commitments and starting to realize that they have to rebuild their businesses and their business models in many cases from scratch and from the ground up. And so I started to make that pivot within Powerhouse to start to build relationships with corporates and build this database that is the foundation of our consulting work with corporates. Um, And so that started to grow and we started to bring on clients. And then I realized the other half of the equation that was missing, or not missing, but the other half of the equation that I wanted to do more in was with founders and with entrepreneurs. And you just can't do it with one or the other. You can't just expect founders to change the world and you can't expect corporates to make the kind of pivots that are necessary to decarbonize our planet um, and our our own systems. And so doing both made a ton of sense to me. And that was part of the impetus for starting Powerhouse Ventures was, okay, we're, we're working on the corporate side and we're working with some of the biggest corporations in the world. This is great. And we're connecting them to startups, but we also want to be a source of capital for the founders who are dedicating their lives to building the technologies that we need. And again, in our case, it's not about the breakthrough technologies in things like industrial processes or hard to decarbonize sectors. That is important. And I'm grateful that really good investors are working on it. But being the impatient person that I am, it was the idea that, okay, for tech that has been proven, you know, wind, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, how do we get that to scale globally as quickly as possible? Because we can get to 90 plus percent decarbonization with proven technology. And you can actually do a really good job financially in the process. And so that was part of the impetus for starting Powerhouse Ventures. And has the universe of founders has that changed since you started this? Because again, I think, and I don't know if this is because I am here in Silicon Valley as well. Actually, I'm in Oakland, but um, <laughs> Me too. Uh, but you know, you're kind of surrounded by this, and you get the sense that, like, oh man, there's a real big shift happening here. Like a lot of like the people that maybe a decade ago would be doing, going into whatever social media or whatever the hot thing was then or the most interesting or exciting thing then are now there's a big shift and a lot more people are saying actually climate is the thing. But I don't know if you have found that in terms of just the type of people who are starting companies or getting interested in this, or if that is just kind of more an inside baseball sense because of where we are. No, I think you're exactly right. And I'm really grateful to have conversations with people almost every week who say, you know, I've been at Google for 10 years and I want to dedicate the rest of my career to climate, you know, what should I do? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. I love those conversations because I think climate tech 1.0 or at the time clean tech, we thought of it as, you know, the energy sector or maybe mobility and climate tech 2.0 or where we are today. I think we're all starting to understand that climate technology is everything. There is no yeah. sector that climate doesn't touch. And that ultimately, this isn't about the environment. This isn't about saving the planet. This is about sustaining our own species. And I think that that has shifted how we think about climate technology and its applications in financial services, in insurance, in how we get around, you know, all of these kind of fundamental areas of our life, climate tech is starting to touch. And given the really unfortunate 
impacts that we're all starting to experience in our day-to-day yeah. lives as a result of wildfires and floods, I think there's a, an awareness that just wasn't there before. And so, yeah, there is certainly a shift in who is starting companies um, and many more people coming from the the tech space and applying their skills in climate tech, which fits really well with our thesis because we are software focused and so seeing relatively new technologies that have only really come into their own in the past five years, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and applying that to the climate tech industry is something that that we very much believe in and want to accelerate. All that being said, there are also founders that we back who have been in this industry for, you know, in some cases decades and who understand the nuances and the complexities of which there are many. And so I think for founders that are coming from a traditional tech space, just to have the the humbleness to recognize where you have expertise and where you need to build your own expertise and pairing yourself with co-founders or founding team members who who do truly understand the problem and the opportunity, which is something that you know, isn't, isn't easy to do. So yeah, in terms of founders that we've backed, I think all, but maybe one or two are industry veterans and have directly experienced the pain point that they're trying to solve. Yeah. It does feel like, um, the shift for a lot of people has been, um, and this is kind of the way it is in a lot of different industries or experiences is that, you know, people change when they have this a visceral experience of the thing. And sadly, it's becoming more visceral and more real for more people, um, especially in California with wildfire season and, and, you know, floods in Florida and various other things. It just does feel like people are kind of, you can talk to people until you're blue in the face about guys, you know, the house right. is on fire, but until <laughs> right. your actual house is on fire, uh, most people just don't quite kind of grok it or really kind of pay attention, but it does feel like more and more people are being forced to pay attention. But what I'm interested in is, so you're working with all these big companies. And, you know, when I was in London, I spent years, decade or more, writing about the BPs and Shells and BHP Billitons, Glencores, like the really big, dirty guys. And they've all, you know, for years, they talked about the need to do more, to decarbonize all that stuff. But these are big super tankers really slow moving. It's really hard to actually make a dent. And so when you're working with them, do you get a sense that there is real movement? And how do you, is there any way you can, when you work with them, that you kind of try to push that along? Because it does feel like, you know, the organizational inertia is really strong. And to be frank, the history has largely been, let us tick this box let us see, you know, oh, we'll go out to Silicon Valley for a week, see what all this new interesting stuff is happening in the world, and then we'll go back and pump more oil or, you know, produce more steel or whatever it may be. Yeah, it, it depends in part on geography. Europe is certainly further ahead than the U.S. as it relates to their oil and gas industry, in large part due to regulation. And that's, I think, an important piece, too. Oftentimes, especially in the venture community, there's this this hubris around, you know, get out of my way, government, let me, you know, make good decisions and make a lot of money. And anyone who's been in this industry long enough knows that it was built based on policy and regulation that enabled all of the companies that have done really well in our space to exist. And so in terms of the biggest players in the world, yeah, you're exactly right. A lot of what we have seen thus far has been lip service and greenwashing. I think that is starting to change. I do think there's a, a reckoning and an acknowledgement of oil and gas companies that in order to stay relevant and even to continue to exist, they do have to shift. You you can't 
deny market fundamentals. And when wind and solar are the cheapest forms of electricity mm. almost everywhere globally, which they are today, you can't ignore that. <laughs> like if you do, you're 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 not operating with fiduciary responsibility to your shareholder. So I do think the the movement is real and starting. Is it happening fast enough? Absolutely not. But this is one of the things I actually learned in working with with Van Jones early in my career was, you know, I was an organizer and an advocate and I enjoyed the work, but it was all about trying to persuade decision makers to yeah. do the right thing. And what I learned was two things. One is if I make it really easy for them, if I do all of the work for them, they're much more likely to say yes. And if I can make them look good doing it even better. But two, it's even better to be the decision maker. <laughs> Those yeah. were kind of my two big, big takeaways from that experience. And so that's why I think the work at Powerhouse, the company and, and the innovation firm is so important because we make it really easy and really compelling for our clients to do the right thing, not just because it's the right thing, but because they're actually going to make more money and, and stay relevant and continue to be the global leader that they are by engaging with us and by partnering with innovators and entrepreneurs. You know, there's three types of corporates in the world, in our opinion, at Powerhouse. There are those that don't think they need to change at all and, you know, good luck to them. There are those that know they need to change, but think they're going to figure it out internally and and don't need to work with innovators or entrepreneurs. And again, you know, I think it's good that they're aware that change is necessary, but I don't think it'll happen internally alone. And then there's the third group and that's, those are our clients, the ones that say, we know we need to change and want to change. And we know it's going to be both from the inside out and the outside in. And so we want to work with innovators and entrepreneurs. We want to know who's out there building technology that we want to be a customer of or even acquire. Um, and so our job is to make it as easy as possible for them to find the technologies that they are looking for. We, we want to do that you know, efficiently and seamlessly. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And can you give some a couple examples of what you're talking about? Because, you know, when people think about renewables, they think, as you say, they think about electric cars, they think about solar panels, wind farms, whatever it may be. But when you're talking about that software layer, I think most people won't think about that and don't realize the importance of that. So what does that look like in the real world? And I'm thinking like, I don't know if this, I spoke with somebody who was working on um, software for like electric car fleet management for like a bus company. 
things like that. But can you give a bit of a flavor of when you're talking about integrating software to kind of make all of this stuff work, just to give people a sense of what, you know, what it is that, you know, you're talking about? Yep, definitely. Uh, and I mentioned earlier, so three primary investment areas for us, one is finance and deployment. So financial technology and software that enables the financing and deployment of more, you know, renewables, clean assets, EVs, batteries, et cetera, et cetera. The second is asset management and optimization. So for those assets that are already out in the field, how do you generate as much value from them as possible? And then third, we call market access and participation. And we think of this as the the democratization of the benefits of these technologies. And so, so yeah, I can give an example in each uh, in finance and deployment, we backed a startup called TerraBase. And when we backed them just three years ago or so, the company's only three and a half years old. It was six co-founders. They were all executives at SunPower, one of the biggest solar companies yep. in the world. And they had this pretty insane goal of getting the price of utility scale solar to below one cent per kilowatt hour using software. And we were like, that's crazy and ambitious. We're in. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now today, you know, again, about three years later, they have a team of 90 people that's rolling out this interconnected digital ecosystem of software and automation to better build the largest solar projects in the world. So the scale of solar development has expanded to utility scale. Yeah. And, and that's been the case for you know five to 10 years. The software required to automate all of the complexities that go with developing projects that have literally thousands of shipping containers worth of equipment and millions of solar panels, there was no software to do that. And so you had all of these inefficiencies that had you know, costs would go over. And and so TerraBase is solving that with software. And they worked on one of the biggest projects in the world, which is in Qatar, which is now selling electricity for 1.49 cents a kilowatt hour. So, you know, in wow. less than three years, they're already close to what at the time was a completely unreasonably ambitious goal. So that's in finance and deployment. And they're very much on that deployment side. So sorry, just before you go into the next example. So just so I understand. So is what they do about kind of effectively project management and getting it built in the most efficient, cheap way possible? Or is it also about managing it once it is in operation? And if it's the latter, what does that look like? You know, how does software make a field of solar panels, which just sits in the sun, <laughs> more like a better operator from, from a financial point of view? Yeah, eventually both. But for now, they're focused on the former. Gotcha. And so the software is to determine, you know, all of the inventory that's coming in. How does it get deployed to the right place at the right time? They're even doing now prefab assembly of panels um, in a like a pop-up location on site and then using things like autonomous electric vehicles to get those panels to the right place. Ah, and so all of this is just dropping the cost even further. The hardware costs have plummeted, but now the majority of costs in utility scale solar is not in the hardware, it's not in the panels, it's in the soft costs. And so driving down those soft costs is what... Manpower, et cetera. Exactly. So it's kind of a software that's like a conductor of the symphony putting it together. Yeah, it's a great description. And some people think, including one very famous person in the space who I won't name, but some people think, you know, isn't solar done? Didn't we, you know, achieve as much efficiency as we're going to get? And yeah, we did. But the technology doesn't mean that that you get to global scale in terms of deployment. And so that's where TerraBase comes in. And then your your segue or your what you, your, your comment is a really good segue into 
um, another company we backed, a company called Raptor Maps. And when we invested, it was a team of three building software to digitize and monitor solar assets. So as you said, you know, they're just sitting out there in the sun doing their thing. But what happens when there's damages or anomalies in panels? How do you know that? And how can you address it quickly? And so Raptor Maps now has a team of, of about 40 people and they've become the system of record for the solar industry, but their core product is using aerial data from drones and and planes and using that to determine those damages or anomalies and panels and being able to fix them so that those projects are generating as much revenue as possible. And so they have uh, 50 gigawatts of solar assets under management in 40 countries. Their customers include some of the biggest players in the world, like 50 Nextera gigawatts. And I didn't know there was 50 gigawatts of solar in the world. <laughs> totally. It's, it's, it's a, it's a significant portion of, of the yeah. world solar. And, and I, and, and this is what I love about software. It's like they haven't even closed a series B yet. And they're a 40 person team and they have 50 gigawatts of assets under management. This is what software can do. Um, and then the last example which is, I think, a good one because it's it's outside of the solar space, and and we certainly cover everything in yeah renewables, mobility, carbon markets, etc. We backed a company called Leap, which at the time they were a four person team. They had a new approach for connecting distributed energy resources, so think electric vehicle batteries or even Nest thermostats, um, and aggregating them and enabling those companies with those assets to participate in demand response markets. And today, Leap is the leading energy market access provider. They have 75 employees on the team. And last year, they were able to aggregate and deliver six gigawatt hours of energy to the grid. Their customers include entities like Google Nest and Sunrun. And what they're doing is effectively helping deliver excess energy back to the grid in in an efficient way. Right. Exactly, exactly. And they fit into that third category, that market access and participation, because they're enabling entities who who couldn't previously or wouldn't previously be able to participate in demand response markets to do so. And it creates a new revenue stream for them. So it's a really compelling value prop. You know, Leap is able to say, would you like to make more money with your existing assets? So those are three examples across, yeah, deployment, asset management optimization, and then market access and participation. Right, right. And so you've just raised this fund. And the thing that kind of stuck out to me, and again, it's obviously, I think, due to the nature of the company you've set up, but a lot of corporate partners are investing in this fund, which is it feels like pretty unique. I mean, it sounds like you've kind of carved out a unique place in the market, but it is, um, it's a lot of these big guys, you know, the big energy companies, big resource companies saying clearly like we want to invest in this because we also want to take part in kind of the, the upside. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. I think two things that make powerhouse ventures unique. One is when you set out to raise a fund, it's really compelling to just raise from a couple endowments, family offices, you know, maybe even pension funds and call it a day. And yep. having just finished fundraising, there's a part of me that's like, "Ooh, that sounds really compelling. <laughs> I would like to be done that quickly. But when we set out to raise, we were really intentional about who could we bring in that would add the most strategic value. Mm. And because Powerhouse Ventures invests in the energy space, the utility space, mobility, financial services, tech, we wanted our investors to represent some of the world's biggest corporations in each of those areas. And so as we were fundraising, we were just checking off each one of those boxes because of the strategic value we knew that they would bring to the table if if they were an LP in the fund. And so we brought in 
Total Energy Ventures, one of the top five energy companies in the world, Constellation Tech Ventures, Energy Impact Partners, American Electric Power, all on the energy and utility side, and then Toyota Ventures on the automotive side, Credit Suisse for financial services, and then Microsoft's their climate innovation fund on the tech side. But then the other piece that makes makes us unique is not just bringing in the corporates. We were really intentional about bringing in individual investors because that was most of the capital from fund one. Mm. It was it was from individuals. And we experienced firsthand how much value that created for the fund. They were the ones to bring us deal flow, to help us with diligence, to support our portfolio companies after we invested because they're all industry execs. Like they built this industry. And so- yeah, yeah. We were able to bring in people who are uh, operators, but also investors who who are not competitive with us. They invest later than us. And so they would be the investors that would lead future rounds. So we have founders and executives from Union Square Ventures and Obvious Ventures and Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and then operators from former leadership at, at SunPower and Lynn Jurek, the former CEO and, and co-founder of Sunrun. Um, I'm hesitant to name it everyone because yeah, yeah. there's so yeah. many people, but, but yeah, people across the venture space, the operating space and really grateful to have them. And I think it's worth noting that the majority of the industry leaders that we brought in are women and that took a lot of intention. Really? Um, yeah, it's pretty, it, it's unheard of <laughs> in our sector. So how did you manage that? Because I've been covering energy and resources. I covered it for, you know, 15 years. It's a sausage party. It's all dudes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how do you, because that must, as you say, it must be, you have to kind of really make an effort to find the women in positions of power in the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I think it helps that we ourselves at the Paros Ventures team, we're, we're a bit of an anomaly in venture capital and certainly in climate tech. Um, being not only women founded, we're actually an all women team, which we're trying to right. change. We, we actually want to add gender diversity, which means adding a man <laughs> to the team. Um, so we're working on that. <laughs> um, uh, they're going to come for you. You're, you're, like, you're not representative. These DEI requirements. Exactly. Exactly. One of our advisors, he was like, you do not have a gender diverse team. Like, don't tell me you care about diversity. <laughs> so um, He's not wrong. Uh, but I mean, I do care about diversity, but, but yes. he had, he had a point. Yes. So yeah, I think it, it just came down to, I mean, every, every industry leader who joined, who's a woman, it's, you know, their friends, their colleagues, their advisors, their mentors, including Alina Zagatova, who's the general counsel for Redwood Materials, Audrey mm. Lee, um, who was the first employee at AMS and, and led a uh, product for Sunrun for years, Colleen Calhoun, who's vice president of XL Fleet, uh, formerly GE, Libby Wayman, who's at Breakthrough Energy Ventures. I mentioned Lynn Jurek, the founder of Sunrun, Mary Rose Silvestri, who was the former CEO of Current Powered by GE, Paige Crahan, who leads Moonshot for the Electric Grid at Google X, uh, Very Maxwell, and Nicole Sistrom that are at Galvanize. So really just like an all-star team of people who I've learned so much from and who who add strategic value again in deal flow, helping us with diligence, supporting portfolio companies after we invest. Um, so yeah, really proud and grateful for all of the people and and especially all of the women who have joined us. It's probably an obvious question, but why or how did you end up with an all women team at Powerhouse? <laughs> um, I mean, for better or for worse, I think a lot of us have found that we tend to know and therefore hire people that are mm. like ourselves. And so yeah, I yeah. think you know we just yeah we 
again, for better or for worse. Uh, but yeah, I think people see us and and know how rare it is to yeah. to have an, an all women team and to have a woman as a, a leader of a fund. And um, that's certainly attracted to the team that we do have and the team that we're building. And how was it when you were starting this whole thing almost 10 years ago now? As a twenty-something woman, how <laughs> I was, was so that? naive. <laughs> I, yeah, I was so naive. But but looking back on it, there were you know, especially being a young woman, there would be times where I'd be with a male colleague, and we would be meeting with you know a I don't know a potential client or you know customer or investor, and they would not even make eye contact with me, even though yeah, I was CEO. Totally. <laughs> they just they wouldn't even look at me. And so yeah, things have changed a lot since then. But I, I very much feel for underrepresented people, you know, women and underrepresented people of color that are founding companies. And I know what that judgment and what those assumptions feel like and, and that lack of recognition. I know what that feels like. And so as we're investing out of the fund, we think a lot about our own internal biases. And we've set a policy in place that 25% of our investments will go to startups with underrepresented founders. And we don't oh, wow. do this because we think it's just the right thing to do. We do it because study after study shows that companies with diverse executive leadership have better financial returns. And so if you as an investor are not paying attention to this and setting goals and holding yourself accountable, you're not acting as fiduciaries to your investors. So that's one policy and commitment that we have in place. We we had that in place for fund one. We got to 23%. So we fell just short of the goal. And it was a good wake up call to recognize that we have to do more earlier and be more intentional if we're going to meet that goal. Um, and then as part of our diligence process, if our initial reaction is to pass on an underrepresented founder, then we give it a second look because we know that our internal and unconscious biases are at play, whether we are aware of it or not. And so that's just standard practice. Give it a second look. And if we do decide to pass, then we are committed to providing actionable feedback and telling the founder what we would need to see for it to be a yes later on so that we're right. adding value even, even if we're not able to join as an investor. So here we are 2022. Are you optimistic about the pace at which we are going? Because I talked to some people in the industry who are like, you know, look, there's a lot of amazing things happening right now. There's a lot of really cool innovation. And, you know, it's kind of when you're talking about innovation, it's often slow, 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 fast. When things kind of fall into place, uh, they can change things quite quickly. But when we're talking about climate change, it's kind of the entire built environment the entire transport industry, the kind of the whole way everything works. <laughs> um, so I'd love to just get your perspective on kind of how you think we're doing and what is happening because you have a vantage that most people don't. Yeah, I generally I am an optimist. And, and I think being able to work on solutions all day, every day, I think that's what enables me to be an optimist. If I yeah. was looking at climate from the outside in, I think I'd be pretty depressed and <laughs> anyone who is, it's understandable. So yes and no, I think I'm enthused by the fact that in a recent PwC report, they reported that in 2021, there were 600 funding rounds. It was a near doubling of active investors from the prior year. In the first half of 2021, there was 60 billion invested in climate tech VC, wow. representing 14% of all venture capital, which that's by far the highest that it's ever been. So, Well, I was going to say that must be way beyond anything in the past. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that is, that's encouraging. And I'm happy to see that. I think we do need this to be mainstream. I know some 
you know, OG climate tech investors are like, what is, what's all this new capital doing here? You know, you don't know what you're doing. And that might be true, but yeah. we need it. Like the whole, I think all of us are very welcoming of as much capital as possible flowing into the sector because it's long overdue and it took this long for the venture community and the private equity community to to recognize the opportunity that is here. And, and I think credit to the funds like DBL and Prelude and Capricorn and others that have been around and doing this consistently for a long time, even through that through that downturn. So I am encouraged by that. At the same time, from a climate science standpoint, we are not on track for 1.5 degrees Celsius no. and, and limiting the, the increase to that. You know, some project two, three, even four, at which point, again, this isn't about the planet. The planet's going to be fine. This is about our own species. And so at that point, you know, the species, long shot for the species to continue to exist. So I think, though, you know, what do you do with that? I think it is easy and valid to just feel depressed. And at the same time, (laughs) you know, I feel like I have no choice but to do everything I can in the short time that I have to make the greatest positive impact possible. And doing that with, an incredible community of people that have built powerhouse with me from the very beginning. I am enthused by, you know, the, the brilliance of the founders who I really do believe are doing the real work. Like, yeah, it's hard to raise a fund and it's, you know, it takes time to deploy it thoughtfully, but, but I think the founders that we get to back and that the whole community is backing, you know, ultimately that, that is what gives me hope. And knowing that there's so many levers for us to pull, government and asset managers and entrepreneurs and corporations like it's starting to coalesce i don't think it's there yet but it does seem like there is this global recognition of what needs to be done now it's a question of doing it yeah well i would say the kind of the red-blooded capitalists are starting to pay attention (laughs) and put money Mm -hmm. toward this because it does feel at least from my personal experience a, a lot of it was kind of the the box ticking yeah yeah you know this is important whatever i'm gonna keep doing my core business even though it's terrible for everybody but it does feel like now there is a shift of like oh actually this is an opportunity when you have somebody like is it stanley fink or larry fink the guy at uh, the blackrock larry who's saying you know the next thousand i think what he said the next thousand billionaires the next thousand unicorns will be in climate tech it's like uh, oh oh yeah okay that's yep. really interesting <laughs> you know that gets people's attention Exactly. And Lynn, Lynn Jurek, the co-founder of Sunrun, who joined us as an investor, she said the exact same thing. She said the last decade in climate tech saw a handful of startups become billion dollar companies. Hers is one of them. Yeah. The next decade, we'll see these companies by the hundreds. And she very kindly said Powerhouse Ventures is positioned to find and invest in these startups at the earliest stages while blazing a path as one of the few women-led funds in the climate tech space. I'm proud to invest in their second fund. Amen. Well, you, you have some work to do on DEI. I'm going to check back. <laughs> Indeed. If you know anyone, any really talented, badass men, let me know. I'll send them your way. I'll send them your way. Um, well, look, thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And, of course, um, you too. Thank you yeah. for the opportunity. Yeah. And good luck. Thanks. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Emily for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen. And I want to give a special shout out to Lisa is here for it. At least that's what she put on the Apple App Store reviews. She gave me five stars, which was fantastic. Appreciate it, Lisa. She said, it's obvious that Danny, me, puts extraordinary effort into covering salient topics and finding guests that are authentic and innovative in the world of tech. The insights they bring to bear are mind-blowing every single day 
time, and then she did a little kapow boom explosion emoji, which I like. I'm a big fan of. So thank you for that. I love getting reviews like that. It really, um, you know, it's good to know people are listening and people are enjoying it. So thank you so much, Lisa. Really do appreciate it. And thank you, everybody else. I will be writing about a whole bunch of stuff in this weekend's paper, so do check that out, uh, The Times, or go to thetimes.co.uk. And as usual, you can find me on Twitter, at Danny Fortson, or email me, danny.fortson, at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.